I remember sitting there and I was talking to my my uh, my dad came over and I said, you know, I have this this Vonage phone. I bet I could just you know plug this in anywhere in the world. Uh, why couldn't I be in some island somewhere and calling people? They don't know or, or care where I'm at. Um, and so I kind of nurtured that idea for about another year or so, and then started basically putting together a, a series of trips um, where I was going around the world. And it's and it's then where I started noticing, um, hey. Um, why are the interest rates in the banks over this country higher? Hey, why do I get along with people in this country better? Or, or hey, why do, why do the girls over in this country seem to take a bit more of a shine to me than, than in the United States? Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 31 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Andrew Henderson, the founder of Nomad Capitalist, a service focused on helping entrepreneurs legally reduce their taxes and go where they're treated best. Andrew has been an entrepreneur since the young age of 22 and along his journey discovered that just because you're born in a country, it does not mean that it's the best place for you. Since starting Nomad Capitalist, Andrew and his team have helped hundreds of individuals reduce their taxes, obtain citizenship in other countries to achieve maximum freedom, and discover investment and banking opportunities abroad. During this interview, we discuss how Andrew got started in business and what made him take that in a location-independent direction, if all taxation is bad and how to legally reduce your taxes, the easiest way for U.S. citizens to obtain a second or third or fourth passport, and Andrew broke down what he would do in a different financial situation ranging from earning $30,000 a year all the way up to a million dollars and just what the different steps that he would take uh, to go where he's treated best and pay the least amount of tax legally possible for each different segment of income. And I'm really excited to have had Andrew on this interview because this is an extremely important topic that is so complex and Andrew is one of the world's top experts on how to do this. You can find all the resources we mentioned in the interview along with Andrew's book at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 31. That's episode spelled out and the number 31. So without further ado, let's dive into this interview with Andrew Henderson from Nomad Capitalist. All right, Andrew, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Hey, doing great, Greg. Appreciate the, uh, the invite. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on because uh, like we mentioned before we started recording, I've been aware of you and kind of like your message for a while now. And you're a specialist in something that I think a lot of people kind of don't really know where to get started with. And they kind of just raise their hands up. and They're like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. So and that's kind of like taxation in the citizenships for, um, you know, nomads. So you said that you're in Mexico City right now. Uh, let's just jump in really quickly and just talk about, you know, what brought you to Mexico City. Like, what do you like about it uh, and who it's for or who you think it's for? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a big Asia guy for many, many, many years. I mean, over a decade, it was one of the, the first regions that I really explored in my nomad capitalist journey. Um, and I think I left Latin America somewhat alone. Yet every time, I mean, I've been to Mexico City many times. I've, I grew up you know, in the United States, and so people go to Mexico, um, not only the beach resorts, but we went to some of the cities. 
And yet, I, you know, I feel like, oh, I remember I was thinking a while ago, every time I go to Mexico City, I really enjoy it. You know, there's a lot going on in Latin America. Latin America actually, by some metrics, is now outpacing Asia um, in terms of investment performance as a region. And so I said, let me go over there, you know, let me do some meetings, let me, you know, do, do some research on this. I think a lot of people are interested in this part of the world. And so what we're doing this quarter is I'm doing, uh, Mrs. H and I, we're doing uh, uh, four big Latin American cities, um, Mexico City, Bogota, where we're doing some some property deals, uh, Santiago and, uh, and Buenos Aires. I think we probably ruled out spending much time in Buenos Aires when we look at how difficult it is to get anywhere else from there on our way back. Um, but that's what I'm doing. I think it's a great location for uh, folks who like great food. Uh, the people here are super nice. It's like a New York City um, in terms of everything's available. People are really efficient. Things are 24 hours a lot of places, uh, but they're nice. Um, and so for those of us who are used to this kind of American, in, in the sense of the Americas, not just the United States, but this American uh, culture, I think it's a very comfortable place. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to check it out. Like I said, I'm I'm gonna be headed over to Mexico at the beginning of 2020, so I'm pumped to check it out. Because like yourself, I actually haven't spent much time there. Um, but where I'm really curious to hear where like your story kind of begins, because so I know that you went to school in the states and you dropped out of college, correct? I, I yeah, at this point I forget. It's been so long. I forget whether they. Uh, they put me, I think I was going to be an academic probation. And I don't know if it was like, you can come back, but like, we're watching you. Or if it's like, don't come back. Uh, <laughs> I never went to a single class. I don't think in, in a year. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a college dropout too. So that's funny. There's, there's quite a bit of like, uh, people that I find that I have on those podcasts that are like, oh yeah, you know, it just wasn't for me and left. Uh, but how did you get involved in business after, you know, your not so pleasant experience in college, I would say? Well, what, what, what I find interesting uh, and I think it's especially relevant now in an era where a lot more people want to be entrepreneurs is, you know, when I was 12, 11, 12 years old, I really got bitten by the business bug. And so then I wanted to be a, an author, um, which is why when I wrote my book recently, it was a real personal project for me. Um, but I decided I wanted to become, I wanted to be in business. And you know, I think when you're a kid, uh, you know, my, my wife recently said on my birthday, she said, oh, I'm sure you've surpassed all your expectations. I'm like, nowhere close. Because when you're 14, you're like, I'm going to be a billionaire. You know, I'm going to own many buildings. And um, so, you know, I kind of, things kind of get reset in college um, when I just kind of, I, I got into it not knowing what I was doing. Um, but, you know, the greatest thing my father taught me uh, in terms of business was, you know, his thing is block and tackle. You know, American football manager, you know, every, every day you just go out and you're just, you're just working hard. And so... I just started calling people and like, uh, hey, I got some stuff to sell you. Do you want it? And and it worked out and I just kind of grew from there. Um, so I, how did I get started in business? I, I don't know that I had some great master plan. I just figured, hey, if I work hard at it, it will go in some direction that will work. So what were you selling when you were calling those people and you were trying to sell them stuff? What were you trying to sell them? So my initial businesses were in the radio broadcasting industry. And, and, and the first thing I wanted to do was I tried to do what I call the sexy business, or at least in the radio business, it's a sexy business, where I took on uh, clients who we were going to syndicate their radio shows. They had a show, and I said, hey, let's, let's pump the show out, uh, you know, uh, and, and you know, we can help with promotion. You can hire me to help you do that. Um, that's a very hard thing to do. And I learned that you know, dealing with uh, the sales cycle in big corporations is not something that I'm really into. Uh, so what we did from there was we pivoted and said, uh, we really got into the, um, 
of the marketing side of it, where, where it's not sexy at all, but it's where the money is. And so basically what the, the business morphed into was kind of a similar model, but hey, uh, you have something to promote, uh, hire us and we'll help you, we'll train you how to do a radio show and then we'll distribute your show as, as basically a paid program. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, I mean, the radio business is, is in such a state of collapse right now that we were able to find a lot of uh, radio stations around the country who wanted to run our our uh, paid programs because it was the only thing they could do from staff to, to, to avoid going bankrupt. Um, so we had, you know, these news talk stations all across the country um, that were, you know, a death's door and $5,000 a month from us to buy out, you know, 10 hours a week kind of thing was what kept them going. Mm. So at what point did you kind of become interested in location independence or how did that come into the picture? So when business was picking up for me, um, to, uh, I guess I remember sitting in my apartment when Hurricane Katrina, so that would have been late 2005, and I had one of those old uh, Vonage phones. Remember those voice over IP phones in my office where you plugged it into the internet, you plugged it in, you could make phone calls, and it didn't always work perfectly. But I remember sitting there and I was talking to my my uh, my dad came over and I said, you know, I have this, this Vonage phone. I bet I could just you know plug this in anywhere in the world. Uh, why couldn't I be on some island somewhere and calling people? They don't know or, or care where I'm at. Um, and so I kind of nurtured that idea for about another year or so and then started basically putting together a, a series of trips um, where I was going around the world. And it's, and it's then where I started noticing, um, hey, um, why are the interest rates in the banks over this country higher? Hey, why do I get along with people in this country better? Or, or hey, why do, why do the girls over in this country seem to – take a bit more of a shine to me than, than in the United States. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that it, it kind of started slowly, but surely it wasn't, uh, you know, I, because I've, I've always been in the business camp of wanting to run a big business and the radio business. I mean, it became a multimillion dollar business. Um, we, we eventually pivoted away from kind of retail clients and, and mostly into kind of big enterprise clients. Um, and as that, and, and, and as part of that transition, the travel increased and increased, and then finally became totally location independent. But for me, it was always a balancing act of maintaining some U.S. presence, even if I was traveling eight months a year. Um, it was never like I want to go and figure out a business. It's like I want to go having a business that's already making a lot of money and do it. And and so I think in that way, I'm probably different than a lot of people. Not to say that's the right approach. Um, I think I would probably encourage people to be less tepid than I was 12, 13, 14 years ago. So how did you kind of, I mean, I know that you mentioned that during your travels, you kind of started noticing these differences in interest rates and the way that people were treating you in different places and what's kind of become the mentality and the idea behind Nomad Capitalist. But what pushed you to actually make it into a business or a service that you offer? Um, and with that, um, like, what is the idea behind Nomad Capitalist for the people who don't know? You know, what's interesting is when I started the radio business, again, I didn't know exactly what form it would take, but, you know, I realized it was going to be a, a sales organization. And I, I mean, I, I always um, was selling stuff as a kid. I mean, I made a magazine, sold that door-to-door. -door. I sold all the stuff the school told me to sell door-to-door, -door, you know, the chocolates for the field trip kind of thing. Uh, I sold websites when I was 12 years old. Hey, you're selling your house. I'm going to make you a website. Back before there was much infrastructure for selling your house online. Um, and so, you know, all the businesses that I started before were, I mean, were designed to say, hey, I want this to be successful. What, what Nomad Capitalist was about was I was in the process of selling my final business investment in the United States in 2012. And I said, you know, 
I'm going to go, I'm, I'm ready to go full time. Uh, I've been traveling most of the year to all these places all around the world, but I was doing it from, you know, fly out of Phoenix, go to Europe for two weeks, come back for three days, go to Asia kind of thing. I said, let me just do it full time. And maybe I can become a media creature or something. And maybe I'll just write a blog and I'll share my experience. And, and I think really for me, the idea was I wanted to do a show uh, like you're doing uh, where I could get people to, inter- you know, to, you know, I want to interview Kevin O'Leary, for example. And I, and I know being a, a media creature from before being in the radio business that, you know, if you have a show, people come on your show. I mean, it's, you know, just becoming your show. So I never really imagined it would be a business. And it was, it was the, it was the number one thing that I've done in my life where it just kind of fell into place. And I think it's a, it's an interesting business lesson that the most successful thing I've done at this point was something that was never really intended to do it. What I was intending to do was just put out information about what I'm doing about an area that not a lot of people talk about, but it's intriguing to a growing number of people. And it's, it's the oldest, you know, trick in the business book. You give people information, and they come to you and ask for a service and say, hey, here's I can help you. And it's taken various iterations over the years. I think we finally perfected the best way to serve people. But um, it was never intended to be that from day one. Mm. So what is the, you know, for people, like I said, who aren't familiar with Nomad Capitalist, and you mentioned the book, which is great. Uh, I got to read it before this interview. So um, thank you for putting that out. So for people who are not familiar with sort of Nomad Capitalist and the services that you offer, what do you do within uh, Nomad Capitalist? So Nomad Capitalist is about the five magic words I talk about, go where you're treated best. And so, I mean, as a business, um, I go where I'm treated best and, and I go where the business is, which is primarily helping people who are living uh, overseas as expats or nomads or in whatever form, uh, reduce their taxes by setting the proper corporate structures, leaving their home country, you know, getting on, on, on uh, getting set up in, the, in what I call the tax quadrant, which is where are you leaving, where are you going, where are you, where is your business? There's kind of a quadrant that you need to check all the boxes. So we do that. We help people get dual citizenship. I think it's a good option. Uh, I happen to be a former U.S. citizen, so dual citizenship for me was a requirement, not necessarily a plan B. Uh, I don't want to be stateless, um, but dual citizenship is important. And we have people who have $200 million who just want an insurance policy, dual citizenship. Uh, we also talk about investing in other countries. And I've spent um, many years going and doing deals now, I guess, on five continents. Um, so, you know, it's bank accounts, it's corporations, it's passports, it's residences, it's, it's properties. Um, but I think go where you're treated best also applies to, again, I mean, uh, I did not marry a, an American. Um, I don't think that I probably would be very successful doing that. And I think there's a lot of softer elements that um, you would not run a multi-million dollar business talking about, or at least I wouldn't. Do, I, I don't know how that would connect. But but I do advocate go where you're treated best. I mean, in any way where you can go and find something better, there's a better place on the map for something that you need. I, I advocate that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, you kind of touch on some things that I think especially Americans have this idea it's kind of like unpatriotic or it's almost like illegal. You know, you watch a lot of these spy movies and other things that you're talking about, like, you know, banking in other countries, other other citizenships, this sort of thing is is kind of people are like, I'm, I'm thinking at this point wondering, like, is is all of this illegal? So how do you like... I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like one of the things that you talk a lot about in the book is taxation. And you said, you know, kind of like reducing your taxes. Mm-hmm. My first question is 
are taxes bad, right? Like, sh- are there taxes that you should be paying? Because to me, as as a, as a person who's grown up in the U.S. as well, even though I wasn't born there, I mean, taxes are, you know, like what pay for roads and these sorts of things. So what is your opinion on that? Like, are, like should we just everybody dodge all sorts of taxes? Or do you think that it's okay to pay taxes in, in, in some, like, aspects? Well, Number one, I don't know that income tax, I mean, listen, I pay taxes for roads. Every time I take an Uber, I'm paying for the fuel that's baked into the price that has a fuel tax that pays for the roads. I'm a big fan of user fees. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. I think that the problem that you have in the Western world that you don't have in the entire world uh, is you have a system where, and by the way, I was just reading about Chile. I've been saying for a long time, Chile is not going to be the number one economy in South America anymore. Um, our most free economy. And what do you see? People are riding the streets. And and someone told me, oh, great result they got. They got higher minimum wage. They got higher pension. And the rich guys have to pay a higher rate of tax. So you have an entire world where, listen, if I grew up in Montenegro with the taxes 9%, I don't know how much I'd be complaining. When the United States or many of the other countries become your your um, non-working business partner and it becomes close to half of your income, uh, I think that's that's a little greedy. You know what I think is especially greedy? Then let's flip the script. And listen, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be unpopular um, because 98% of people are not entrepreneurs. Um, the vast you know, the, the approximate number, don't hold me to that number, but the vast majority of people, they follow the herd. And so Nomad Capitalist takes it one step further. And so here's what I say. I paid a lot of money in taxes to the United States when I lived there. And you know what? If you want to live in the United States, you may not agree with the policies. You may think they should be lower. I think politics is not the way to solve problems. You should just get out, go where you're treated best. But if you're going to live there, yeah, I think it's right to pay. I don't think it's correct to live and break the law. Uh, that, might make me, that makes me unpopular in my circle. Because people say, oh, well, you know, what, by, by hook or by crook, you should just not pay. No, if you make the decision to live in a country, you should follow it. What I've said is, if you can go to a country where they don't tax you, why is the U.S. government's uh, opinion more superior to the UAE government. So, like, why are they not entitled to, to run their country the way they want? And why can't I choose to go there? The same way that if I don't like McDonald's, I go to Burger King. People love competition and everything, but somehow if you're born in a place, whether it has high taxes or communism or whatever restrictions, suck it up. And here's my unpopular answer to the average person. The average American, first of all, half Americans pay zero. So how about they stop dodging taxes? They're using more services than anybody. I was a single guy living there doing practically nothing, paying a boatload of taxes for all half the country pays zero. People go, I'm paying my $1,000 a year. It's a a multi-trillion dollar economy. We don't need your $1,000 a year. That ain't moving the needle, okay? So how about people who aren't contributing step up a little bit rather than continually pointing the finger at people like myself, like you, like people in your audience and saying, you have to pay more. People are saying, oh, we should go back to 70% tax rates. But are they asking the half of the country that's not paying anything to step up? No, of course not. In fact, they're giving them more things. You know what? Now university is free. Now this is free. For the amount of taxes you pay in the United States, more things should be free. But uh, that's how I view it. And, and I think that you have the right to go where you're treated best. If you don't want to go where you're treated best, you're just going to try and hide money in your safe and break the law. I, I'm not really as okay with that. Um but I think you should have a choice. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it is interesting because I wonder how many people know about this. Um, you know, the fact that the U.S. does charge you tax based on like your citizenship. So like, for example, I haven't been in the U.S. for the last, what, like six months or something like that, but like, I'm still getting charged by that. So did that then, because you did mention that you don't have a U.S. citizenship anymore, which I'm sure is pretty surprising to most people that that's even an option, but was that, you know, an influencing factor in you deciding to, you know, kind of like stop using or not having a U.S. citizenship anymore? I think the challenge for me, I mean, you know, my challenge is a different challenge to most people. And so I think that, um, you know, growing up and not feeling connected with the culture, it's an easier decision to make. You know, I have people right now, I had a gentleman mm-hmm. I spoke to yesterday, he makes $6 million a year. He's, he's a very young guy. It's like, wow, what's this guy doing? Um, there's no way he wants to renounce. He says, you know, I, I will pay something and we're going to help him, um, you know, make some moves to, to pay less again by moving to places where he can be treated better. But he says, you know, it's better to pay something and remain a U.S. citizen. And you know what? Um, if I were in, if I were somebody else, I might have the same opinion. I might want to pay four or eight or 12% and keep the U.S. citizenship. I personally don't like the United States. Um, I have a family that's mobile. My parents, at least, are able to travel. We're meeting here in Mexico City for Christmas. Uh, I have friends who meet me. I have friends around the world. Um, I just don't like the country. And when Trump got into office uh, with America first, I said, this is not going to be good for people like me. Um, I don't believe in America first. Um, I'm one of those nasty globalists, I guess. And uh, I knew there'd be all kinds of things that make my life very difficult, not just financially uh, and not really financially. I just figured, you know, um, you know, I just figured life was going to become difficult. Um, and you're seeing that even for people who live in, in countries like the UK, um, high tax countries, they're going nuts complying with all the new directives for America first. Um, and so all those things kind of converge. Yeah. I think, um, something that's really interesting also that you talk about other than the taxation that I mean is kind of like related to it is obviously like citizenships. Um, and I have friends, you know, I like yourself grew up in Ohio and I don't know for what reason, but there is like a lot of people in Ohio who don't have passports and everybody that I meet, I'm like, get a passport, right? right? Because I think it's so dangerous to not have this document that allows you to leave the country. Um, so I do want to talk to you a little bit about, because the next step, obviously, when you have one is to have two. Uh, and I'm lucky enough that I have dual citizenship because I am Bulgarian by birth, but I have a U.S. citizenship. So I already have, I guess I'm one step ahead. But there's a lot of people who don't have kind of like my background. So what are the first steps that somebody who wants to get a second citizenship? What are some of the ways that somebody can do that? Well, I'll tell you just as a quick aside. I mean, people say, do you consider yourself American anymore? I said, no, because you know anyone can move to the United States and become an American. I would say if you leave and and hand the passport back, you're not anymore. What I will say is when people, you know, well, what's your identity? Ohioan does come up because there was a certain thing about Ohio. I mean, there's a certain um, kind of calm and um, uh, there's just a certain set of values that I think uh, relate to those of us who are from Ohio. But um, yeah, because you're from Cleveland originally, correct? Uh, and as I say, there's the, the acceptable response to that is I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, yeah I, mean, I, th- I think the Midwest is a great place in the United States, and 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 um, you know I'm, I'm I'm proud of that. I'm proud of um, you know having that background. 
Um, but to your point, I mean, the first thing that I would do had a, had a good friend of mine who said, Andrew, you got to take a step back. You're, you assume everybody's, you know, way ahead of you. And he said, yeah, number one, get your U.S. passport, get your Canadian passport, get you know, whatever passport it is that, that you qualify for, you know, get that. <laughs> Even if you just have one citizenship, uh, we helped him uh, get citizenship through his ancestry. So, um, you know, if you have parents, grandparents, potentially even great grandparents from somewhere else, uh, that could be possible. And so we've helped people with everything from New Zealand, Portugal, Australia, UK, Canada, L- Latvia, Hungary. I mean, a lot of them um, people have and they don't have to know it. If you don't have any ancestry um, and you're willing to travel, what I would suggest is at least getting set up with some kind of residence permit. There are paper residence programs out there that change from time to time. And we keep tabs on these. But you can go and set up a residence in a country. You may not need to spend a lot of time there. Uh, and eventually you can qualify for naturalization. Um, there are what I call fast-track naturalization programs. Bulgaria, interestingly enough, is, is shutting theirs down now, um, where you go and invest money. Some are more formal. Some are more informal for certain types of people, um, where you go and, let's say, you know, you buy half a million dollars in real estate, and they just put you at the front of the line, and you get a passport in a year. Um, there are other programs, which I've also done, um, citizenship by investment. You go and donate $100,000 to a Caribbean island or, um, you know, in Malta, for example, you, you, you do a million-dollar-plus deal with them. Um, so, you know, I'm going to just start with the baby steps. If you have ancestry and you can get an, a European Union citizenship, that's great. Now, if you're a really wealthy person, U.S. and EU citizenship to me are rather similar Obviously, the U.S. has issues on a tax level now. The EU doesn't. I think the EU may in the future. I recommend people get like one off-the-wall citizenship. Um, but, you know. What do you mean by that? Well, a citizenship that's not part of some big, I mean, it's an alternative citizenship. So, for example, um, you know, my, my, uh, my wife has Armenian citizenship through descent. And we have some friends who are, you know, dating Armenians. And, you know, let's say one of them is British, for example. To me, Armenian is a nice kind of complement because it's more in line with Russia. You can travel to different places that, that, you know, UK citizens can't. Um, and you know, if the UK were ever to go crazy and say, you know what, we're also broke like the U S and we're going to start taxing people all over the world. I don't think Armenia is the kind of country that's going to be doing that kind of thing. And so you'd have a fallback. Um, you know, we had one gentleman, he had U S Canadian, Australian and British citizenship. And that's great. And what a world of opportunities. He had all four. Uh, And (laughs) that's great. Does he really have a passport problem? No. But if you're telling me, Andrew, I want to be perfectly optimized, I'd say find a country that doesn't care what you're doing. Because all four of those countries are, are, you know, they're a little bit uh, judgmental. You know, oh, oh, yeah, where are you going? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, are you paying? Uh Uh-huh. All right. Well, make sure you let us know what you're doing. Um, So, you know, I think having a non-judgmental one in there could be helpful. Yeah, because I, I mean, my next question was going to be because I have two and obviously I'm thinking, can I have three? But I guess you just answered that not only can you have three, you have four, which is pretty impressive. Is there like a, a limit to how many passports you can or citizenships you can legally have? I made a video where I got really carried away. And I think we said you could get 14 by age 30 if you if you set up your life in an extreme way. Um, you know, people pointed out and they're correct that um, there are some countries that limited um, I think here in Mexico, um, my team just finalized the actual research. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but I think it was if you're naturalized, you can't have more than two others. Um, I think Russia 
has restrictions on how many. So some countries do have restrictions. But, I mean, countries like the U.S. do not. Any country that's going to have a program is not going to. I mean, St. Lucia, again, what do they care? What does Dominica care? I mean, they're in the business of, of you know, half of their government is funded in Dominica by, um, by, do, by citizenship, by investment. I mean, they're not going to impose restrictions. So theoretically, you could have, I think one guy had eight. So what is like, if you were to, I mean, a majority of people listening are U.S. citizens. So... What would be if you were a U.S. citizen still and you wanted to kind of get one or two other passports or citizenships that would kind of give you like the like as much freedom as possible? What would you suggest or some passports to look at? Because like, like for example, just to give my kind of like myself as an example, I have a U.S. passport. I have a Bulgarian passport, which gives me access to Europe. Is there something that then like you can get to give you access to like Asia, for example, or easier access to Asia? Well, I mean, the ASEAN passports, I mean, so for example, like we, we do a lot of investment deals in Cambodia and there's always talk of some kind of weird, you know, if you give this guy some money and this, you know, you can get a Cambodian passport. And uh, as part of ASEAN, I mean, Cambodians can go to Brunei for I don't know, 15 or 30 days or something. You know, Asia is a very difficult area to get passports in. Um, Singapore, I suppose, is the one, or, or South Korea potentially may be the one that's still on the table. They, they don't allow dual, uh, and they do impose restrictions on where you travel. Singapore, to me, is an, is an example of the bloom is off the rose. You're too late. Um, that was possible. Again, they don't allow dual, although I don't know how much they're, they're tracking people down once they already get Singapore, and if, they, if you were to get other ones after that. So Asia's tough. The African Union's always talking about opening up, you know, kind of an EU kind of deal. I don't know when that's happening. So at this point in the conversation, I just want to jump in and quickly apologize because Andrew and I actually lost connection. That's just one of the side effects of talking with people from all over the world. And so I wanted to jump in and apologize and also explain the connection here as we jump back in. Essentially, what you just heard from Andrew was him talking about some of the opportunities for citizenship in the African Union. And we, when we pick up here in just a couple of seconds, uh, he'll be talking about the opportunities in Latin America and how to actually begin that process of gaining that second citizenship. Some kind of nominal contribution. Maybe I've got to buy some bonds for ten grand, or I've got to rent an apartment, or I've got to do something. Um, you know, Paraguay was one that used to work for this. It may still work, but but not nearly as cleanly. Where you had to put five thousand bucks basically in the bank account. Um, Panama is touted as this, although I think I've I've gotten people to realize that um, Panama is not really naturalizing people anymore. But find something like that where you can spend minimal time in the country, come back in three years, four years, five years, get your passport. Those are generally more on, you know, off the radar passports um, because you know France isn't just handing out passports to anyone who has $5,000. The alternative is, or, or maybe do both, and if I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm going to pay taxes anywhere in the world. Um, what I might consider if you're starting out and you're not making millions of dollars is going and taking an intermediary step to um, a country like, in my case, it was Ireland. I, I was interested in going and living in Ireland. Um, and so if you can get in there, you could put in your five years residence in. So a lot of mainland European countries have freelancer visa programs, Germany, Hungary, um, France, Portugal. You don't need to, you don't need that much money to qualify. And so the reason I don't use those that much in my business is because, um, you know, guy goes and lives in France, he's going to pay half a million dollars in tax. 
if that's not a concern and you're willing to do that for five years or if your number is far less than half a million, that might be a nice thing to do as an American to get that equal quality passport um, that, you know, then gives you more freedom. So the one thing I see with U.S. citizens is they're very reticent to give up a U.S. passport if they don't think they have anything equal. You know, if I get someone a U.K. passport, they're, they're very comfortable renouncing and it opens up their freedom. But, you know, if they're Armenian, they don't really want to do that. So I, I would consider one or both of those steps. Gotcha. What are some of the benefits? Because the other thing that you talk about is like banking in other countries. Um, my first question is, are you able to bank in another country without having a citizenship in that country? Um, and then what are like the benefits of digital nomads, location independent entrepreneurs or workers to have money in other banks? Well, for U.S. citizens, it's not necessarily a tax issue. The U.S. tax system functions much differently. Um, if you're Canadian or Australian or anything like that, um, you're probably going to want to move your money and your bank accounts out of your country if you intend to to um, to depart for tax reasons. Um, that's just one of the many criteria that come into place. Um, for me, there's a couple things that stand out. I mean, it's general diversification. Um, if you're doing deals, for example, maybe you want to hold different currencies. Maybe you want to hedge against your home currency. Um, maybe you're traveling and you want to hold other currencies more easily. Obviously, you know, there's, there's plenty of kind of uh, cloud or fintech solutions now that, that just do currency conversion very well. But, um, you know, for me, it's diversification. Um, I remember the time when I had a business in Arizona and I had lived in California for six months. So I filed a California tax return. I paid them their $800 ransom. And then I said, hey, I was there for six months. I've already come and gone. So that's my final return. Here's your money. Leave me alone. Next year, they said, oh, we didn't get your money. And I said, well, you know, final return, go back and look at it. And then they just came and helped themselves, the money from my bank account, which I called the lawyer. He said, not even really legal because Arizona Bank, Arizona LLC, like how can California just do that? Well, they can do it because the bank fears them a lot more than they fear me. And, and I really realized they can do whatever they want. Um, so... I like to be diversified. I like to have different bank accounts, different countries. The question of do you need to be a citizen, often not. Uh, you are seeing a lot more countries requiring residence. Um, it used to be, you know, six years ago, I got an account in Singapore. I put a thousand dollars in. I still have that account to this day. Now the minimum is basically fifty grand for non-residents. So there are places like Singapore um, where you can go and get accounts, but they're they're often upping the stakes. I've talked about Georgia and Armenia as being places that are still pretty open to people with, you know, smaller amounts of money um, because they're developing. And, and so in that way, they are what I'd call, you know, the next Singapore, right? I mean, Singapore's already developed. They don't really need your thousand um, dollars. It's too much hassle for them. For Georgia, they'd love your thousand um, dollars. But, but even here in Mexico, two years ago, it was a lot easier to open an account um, due to all these international rules and this and that, all kinds of different stuff. I mean, it's becoming a lot more difficult, which is why I say if I can find an account for a thousand or ten thousand or you know whatever the amount that I'm comfortable with is, I'm probably going to open that account if I think it'll have utility in the future because it's a tunnel that's going to be harder to get into in the future. Mm. I want to kind of do something that's a bit more 
pinpointed so that people can kind of know what they can do based on their income. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you a couple of income ranges and you can kind of tell me what you would suggest those people do to like reduce their taxes or just sort of like if you were in those positions, what would you do to kind of live the nomad capitalist lifestyle, right? Um, So the first one that I think people are going to fit into is sort of like the 30K to 50K income. Um, What would you say are like the best things to do for somebody that's earning like that much in income? Well, if they're a U.S. citizen, they may not even need uh, a foreign bank account if they don't want one. Uh, I would take advantage of of the easiest foreigner income exclusion test, the physical presence test. I'd simply be outside of the United States um, for the vast majority of the year. Um, and if you're in that 30 to, to 50 uh, grand range, uh, I mean, the bigger issue on tax is probably going to be your Social Security and Medicare. Um, and so I don't know if you're making 30 grand. Number one, you might be a single person which isn't really a business in the eyes of the tax man. It's a, it's a profession and there's different rules with what you can do. You're more restricted. So you're, you may not even be able to really use an offshore company and, you know, offshore companies are more expensive to set up than things like us LLCs. And they're especially more expensive to set up properly. Uh, and they're especially more expensive to set up in places that are zero tax now because of all these new rules and regulations like economic substance requirements. So if I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, I'm taking advantage of the foreigner and income exclusion. I'm just paying my Social Security and Medicare tax. I quite possibly might be banking in the United States unless, you know, I can get an account. I get a, at a TBC in Georgia. Um, and uh, that's what I'm doing. If I'm not a U.S. citizen, I'm, I'm, I'm simply not paying tax in my home country. I'm going to go through the process to do that legally. And I would probably follow a similar setup with a bank account somewhere else, um, whether it's in the U.S. if you can get one, whether it's in a place like Georgia um, where, you know, people who are hiring, you can pay you. Gotcha. What about, um, going up kind of a level? It's somebody who's earning like the a hundred thousand to about, you know, like the, the mid six figures. What are some of the things at that point? I imagine more options open up. There's more things that like, you know, if, if, if moves were to be made, there's like, you know, the savings would be bigger. So like, what would you say if you were in that kind of, you know, a hundred thousand to mid six figures, like what, what are some of the things that you can do? For a U.S. citizen, correct. Yeah, so at 100 grand, I mean, so the 400 income exclusion this year covers you for 105,900 dollars. There's a standard deduction if you don't have other U.S. things like interest income or rental income, you could use that as well. So um, if you're making 10 grand a month, I would say at this point you probably you could use a corporate structure again. And if you're a one man show um, or a one woman show, it's it's harder to get away. With. It's harder to do that. Um, so in that case, I would follow the the other advice, but if, you know, if you can afford to, to bring someone on staff or you have some freelancers or something like that to where it's not just, you know, you doing the work as a, as a service provider, um, then I would have a, a company somewhere overseas. Um, I'd have basic banking overseas, maybe with a FinTech, um, you know, like a currency or something like that. Um, I'd be using the foreign income exclusion. You know, as you go up the food chain now, it becomes more complicated. I mean, let's say you're making 250 you're you're probably in the bubble of needing a more advanced structure to avoid all the new uh, America First stuff um, where you've got to pay. The alternative to that would be if you're a U.S. citizen um, or if you're a U.S. green card holder, EB-5 holder, whatever, um, you could move to Puerto Rico. Um, but, you know, for me, that really didn't appeal to me because I don't really want to spend most of my time in Puerto Rico. 
Gotcha. And what about sort of the 1 million and up range? Um, what are the things that you'd be doing at that point? I guess the other thing that, that really makes a difference here is, you know, are you running a cash flow business or are you running a business that you're going to sell? So, so the, mm. the gentleman I was working with the other day, making six million bucks, also planning on, on carving off a slice of that business and selling it to private equity to hundred million dollar valuation. So in that case, um, it's probably a renounce or, or be in Puerto Rico because living overseas doesn't really help you on capital gains. Um, it helps you in active income. So it depends on what kind of business. Uh, at a million dollars, I mean, you've got a lot more options. Um, I would definitely have a very advanced structure to be avoiding all the new stuff with guilty and subpart F inclusions. Um, you know, I, 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 it, again, it depends on where you want to live. I mean, if you want to live in the Cayman Islands, um, Cayman Enterprise City is a great program. It's going to cost you a lot of money to set the company up, but you've got, you've got a pretty legitimate 0% company. If you want to live in Jersey, you can pay 0%, but you've got to live in Jersey. Um, and if you make a million dollars and, Let's say you pay four hundred and fifty grand while living in the U.S., and we could get it down to between, you know, fifty and one hundred and fifty living outside of the U.S. Um, I would take some of that savings and, and get at least an insurance policy to where you know you could leave if you wanted to. If you're the guy who doesn't want to leave, then I'd pay the fifty to one fifty with my advanced structure. Gotcha. Now, in wrapping up, I kind of have to ask you the the question that you know I I, I kind of whenever I have people that are like you know understand finances legitimately i, I kind of like to ask this question is like what is your opinion on cryptocurrency because you know is it something that you would suggest people hold like just kind of like what are your thoughts on it um i'm, I'm really curious to hear that you know, i have you know minority positions in, in cryptocurrency um here's my challenge with cryptocurrency um obviously i work with a lot of folks who have crypto i have a lot of respect for it um i can tell you <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff, some of the people are doing with crypto blows my mind. I mean, I'm a fine, you know, I'm a scrappy entrepreneur. I think I understand finance. I mean, but, but some of this stuff is, is really intense. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to be critical of, of everything that I don't know about. My concern is and it's some of the same concerns I see in the nomad industry is um, I don't see this, you know, super wide adoption of cryptocurrency in the near future. I certainly see applications in emerging markets and unbanked markets. I think there's other ways that those will be reached also. But, you know, this idea that, you know, in the, in the, the Western world, cryptocurrency is going to take over. The average person loves the government. I mean, again, as we mentioned earlier, half of them, at least in the United States, don't pay any tax. Why wouldn't they? They get free services. Um, so I don't know that, I mean, the average person who loves the government and, and says, you know, we should play by the rules. The average person who, who doesn't like people like me who think that, you know, um, you know, having a, a very unpleasant memories of living in the United States means I should still, and I've got to, I've got to carry their passport and send them a check um, just because it's the thing to do. Most people are, it's the thing to do kind of people. They don't evaluate things. Um, that's why people do all kinds of behaviors they don't expect. That's why people, you know, get their girlfriends pregnant in high school. It's why people, you know, stay in jobs they don't like. So that's just, they just go with the flow. So I, I, I have a challenge with, with super wide adoption of crypto, I also have, you know, kind of a, a challenge to your earlier point of, you know, people who use crypto to, let's say, live in the United States and hide all their wealth. Um, I'm not going to say unethical or immoral. I'm just going to say, I think, impractical that you live in a country and um, you get away with not paying them in an era of greater transparency than ever. And so I guess my challenge with, with some folks, not the majority, but, but a, a minority, is this thing where it's smart. 
it's the same thing I, I see in the libertarians. I'm a political libertarian, but I, I can't even be involved in it anymore because I'm tired. You know, people who just they know everything about everything. I think it's just a bad way to run a business and to run your life. And so I guess I see some of those conflicts, and I see in the nomad community as well people who think nomadism is going to become widespread. Go to the places that I go. Most people do not want to be nomadic. They want to stay where they where they're from. Mm, gotcha. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, stopping by the show. I really appreciate it because I do think that you are an expert and you have a very interesting opinion on a lot of things that most people don't know about. Um, so if people are interested in all of this and they do want to learn more, obviously these are very complex topics that we can't cover in just you know a 45-minute, one-hour kind of interview. Where can they go learn more about this so they can get ed- more educated, understand their options? And then if there are folks who kind of are interested in hiring you for your services, where can they find out more about that as well? I think the first place to start is I wrote a book. Um, it's on Amazon. It's called Nomad Capitalist. And people who've worked with us who've been really successful oftentimes started by reading that book because it gave them a lot of anecdotes, a lot of personal, a lot of the human side. I think the human side here is important. I'm not just like the bean counter. I live this. I've done it. I know the challenges. I know the emotions that are involved. And I think that is often overlooked. And so I put some of that in the book. You know, to the point you mentioned earlier, the book is not going to give you, you know, the same consulting plan that I or a big four company are going to give you for tens of or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think a few people got upset, like, where's my personal roadmap? I mean, when you come in with me, we might ask you two or three hundred different diagnostic questions, which can go in some cases 10 or 20 different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can't put that in a book. Right. So I understand there's no one size fits all, but the book's a great place to give you all the ideas and you can start saying, okay, this is for me. This is not for me. You can kind of pick from the buffet. Um, if you're interested in help and we, we have, you know, 600 plus videos, 1500 plus blog posts that we've done. Um, and you can go to nomadcapitalist.com to find those. You can go to nomadcapitalist.com to work with us. Generally it is that mid six figures, uh, and up income earner. Um, that we're able to help. Um, I'm certainly not you know, the cheapest solution because I think that there's a lot of work that needs to go into it to do it right. Um, and and I try and really you know do that. And so that's not you know a, a super cheap solution, um, but I think it's a it's a holistic solution and it's a proper solution. And so you know we do that at nomadcapitalist.com about ten people a month. Uh, but really for for most folks, start with the book. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I have the book. It's got some really great information. So uh, I'm going to put the link for it in the show notes for this episode. So whoever wants to go and uh, pick it up, uh, you can find it there. But Andrew, thank you so much for all the um, information that you're putting out there. I really do appreciate it. It is a topic that is not like talked about very often because I think it is so complex. So I just want to say thanks for kind of talking about it and uh, you know bringing some clarity to it. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, being on the show, man. My pleasure. Anytime.